Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session, Why We Should Read to Children, featuring John Flanagan, Morris Gleitzman and Alison Lester in conversation with Jesse Blackadder, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hi everybody, I'm Jessie Blackadder from Byron Writers Festival. This is going to be the fastest session in the whole festival because why we should read to children is kind of a no-brainer. I actually researched why should we not read to children. I was looking for that cutting-edge research on how children will be so much better off without being read to and I did not find it. Okay, now I'm pretty excited to be up here on stage with, with... what is basically kind of kid-lit royalty, I know. Hold your rapturous applause, but kind of let it build while I introduce them. And I'm going to go on a bit, so you'll have plenty of time to really think about that applause. So these three authors between them have written and illustrated dozens of best-selling books for all ages. They've been translated into many different languages. They've won awards all over the planet. We have two Australian children's laureates, a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. You can kind of work on guessing who's what as I go along. A frozen chicken thawer. Can anyone even say thawer? Someone who thaws frozen chickens. Uh, That's been a job. Uh, An author who has inspired an instructional app. The owner of a horse called Woollyfoot. I bet you can guess that. A department store Santa. Two authors who've got their own Australia Post stamps, two writers of television comedy, and a singer with a folk choir called the New York Public Library. All right, I'm going to roll through all three of them. Keep that applause building. Okay, Alison Lester. They can't help themselves, the wonderful Alison Lester. Alison has published best-selling and awarded books more than 25 children's picture books and two young adult novels. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the titles. Noni the Pony, Are We There Yet? I bet a lot of people know that one. The Very Noisy Baby and my personal favourite, Sophie Scott Goes South, which I love. She's won many prestigious awards. And I just have to say, I I can't really list all of the awards because that would just take the whole session. (laughs) Although then we would only have that last couple of minutes to say why we should read to children because it's a good idea. That would be sorted. Uh, Alison was the inaugural Australian Children's Laureate along with Buri Monty Pryor. And this year she was awarded an honour... Sorry, honoured with an Order of Australia. Hold the applause. (laughs) I cannot stop you. Here's some things you may not know about Alison. She's voyaged to both Antarctica and the Arctic as a writer, artist and photographer. She once got a grant to research the Spanish Riding School in Vienna. I want to know where that grant gets advertised. And she has her own Australia Post stamp. Okay, moving right on quickly, John Flanagan. Okay, next to me here. John's Rangers Apprentice and Brother Band Adventure Series books have sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. They're available in more than 100 company, country, companies. I don't know what I was thinking then. Countries. They're regularly on the New York Times bestseller list and they've had multiple award shortlisting and wins both in Australia and overseas. Some things you might not know about John Flanagan. 
He has an app which will teach you how to shoot a bow and arrow. That's kind of handy thing. Actually, I don't, but... <laughs> Are you sure? It's not on your phone? I've found oh, it. it. There, an app exists based on your books. Okay. Is this the first you've heard of it? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I'm surprising John today with the news. Okay, but here's something that I think he does I remember. I am thrilled by it, though. <laughs> he once wrote a rude poem about his boss in the advertising agency which resulted in him getting promoted. <laughs> and he was one of the creators of the hit TV show Hey Dad, which I bet a lot of people remember. I know, I found out some pretty interesting things about these guys. Okay, on then the end we have Morris Gleitzman. <laughs> so Morris grew up in England and moved to Australia when he was 16 and he's the current Australian Children's Laureate. And his books explore serious and sometimes confronting subjects in unexpected ways. And I think you can tell that from the titles. We've got Two Weeks with the Queen, that's pretty straightforward, Toad Rage, Bum Face, Give Peas a Chance, <laughs> Extra Time, Loyal Creatures. The book's called Once, Then, Now, After, Soon, Maybe, and the forthcoming volume, Always coming out soon. Now, some things you might not know about Morris. He used to write for the Norman Gunston television show. <laughs> How about that? He did have a job thawing chickens and he also has his own Australia Post stamp. Now, one of the reasons that we should read to children is because these good people might be out of a job if you don't. So I want you to assure them of how beloved and important they are. I want this rousing, stamping, welcoming Byron Bay cheer. <laughs> Aren't we lucky to have them? All right, so now I want you to sort of settle back in your chair, get comfortable... You might want to shut your eyes because this is Byron after all. And just remember that experience of being read to as a child. So you might have been snuggled up on a parent's lap or you might have been tucked into a really cosy bed. The parent's voice is bringing this story to life for you. They're expressive, their voices, they're doing the funny voices, they're doing the scary bits, they're doing the comforting bits. They're completely focused on sharing a story with you. So there's this really sort of intense little bubble around you as that story's being read. And there's the delightful anticipation of what's coming next in the story. Even if you know what's coming as a kid, you have that feeling, oh, that scary bit's coming, oh, it's exciting. <laughs> there's the rhythm of the language and, of course, there's the pictures. You're on a journey and that journey is full of warmth and comfort and love and stimulation and security. And now that you're all warmed up, I'm going to invite Alison Lester to, I don't know if she's going to sing it or do it in oh. interpretive dance, but she's going to share a story with you. Okay, Jessie. Um, no interpretive dancing from me. I don't want to make you all run from the tent. But um, I'll read you a little bit from Tricky's Bad Day and... Uh, a lovely composer um, called Michelle Scully has turned this into a song. And when I read it, I can't help but sing it. So I'll sing a little bit, even though I'm not a very good singer. Maybe John um, Flanagan could join in because yeah, wasn't he on. with it? You can do the dum de dums yep. <laughs> It's called Tricky's Bad Day and it's inspired by one particular set of grandchildren because um, there's four of them and they came one, two, three, four. So that's how old they were at one stage. And their house was just absolute bedlam. So everything that 
is in this book actually happened. They were so wicked that when I turned them into a book, I had to make them tigers because if they were children, people would have just thought, oh, that's too much, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Tricky woke early when it was still night. He didn't call out or turn on the light, but his bottle was empty until his was too, so he set out to fill them like Mama would do. In the kitchen, the milk spilled all over the floor. Tricky slipped and he slid and his head hit the door. He woke Mum and Dad, Matilda and Frankie, and now the whole family was cross-tied and cranky. Back to bed, growled Dad, and I mean right away, it wasn't a very good start to the day. Is that enough? (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, a question to all of you on the panel. What's your earliest memory, if you have one, of being read to? Maybe start with you, Morris. I think um, my earliest memory of being read to was a small volume called The Riot Act by, um, <laughs> by, by my father. But, um, um, but uh, He did not know this question in advance. He hasn't planned that answer. Very quick. Um, no, I was, I was very lucky. We didn't have a lot of books permanently in my house um, in my um, younger years, but my, um, my parents took me down to the local public library at, at quite a young age, and uh, there was a very um, broad-minded librarian who saw no necessary distinction between the children's and the adult section, so I was able to roam freely. And, uh, and even when I could read independently, um, my mother understood that there is a very precious thing happens when we, when we give each other what, as we age, is perhaps the most precious gift of all, our time, to read out loud to each other. And, uh, and so there was a brief period where I was technically able to read independently. I had access to the, um, even the top shelves of the adult sections of the library. So occasionally I'd bring books home for mum and son reading time, and I could see mum just kind of going, oh, well, um, <laughs> I'm going to finish this one after I've read this page to him. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Alison? Um, I can't remember being read to at all, and it sounds like my parents must have been terrible people, but they weren't, and maybe I've forgotten, but um, I can't remember having much in the way of picture books, and it probably wasn't until I was an independent reader that I started to read a lot, so yeah, but I can remember reading to my own children, and I read to the oldest two quite a lot, but by the time the third one came along, I was always really busy, and he'd be up in his room going, Mum, come and read me a story, and I'd go, I'm coming! (laughs) And then often when I got down there, he'd be asleep, or if I did get into bed and read him a story, I'd go to sleep. So, yeah, he really missed out. (laughs) Mid-reading. What about you, John? Um, The same. I have no memory of being read to. Um, I must have been. I do remember being very impatient to learn to read myself. Uh, So I must have been read to. But um, if I could do a a reading now, because there's, there's another point to this question, I think, that... Um, my father died when I was about six years old and I didn't know him very well. I always thought of him as a very stern and strict and, and rather severe person. And I found out since from my sister that this was so far from the truth. He was very warm and, and had a great sense of humour. After he died, some years after he died, my brother and I found the only book that, that we knew he'd possessed and it was a collection of Banjo Patterson poems. And we started to read these. And, and I mean, Banjo was an amazing writer. Uh, his, his poems ranged from the, the, the 
amazing drama and excitement of the man from Snowy River to the, the wonderful descriptive vistas in Clancy of the Overflow to the absolute anarchic humour from this particular one, which is called the G-Bung Polo Club. Uh, I'll read it for you if you'll bear with me. It was somewhere up the country in a land of rock and scrub they formed an institution called the G-Bung Polo Club. They were long and wiry natives from the rugged mountainside and the horse was never saddled that the G-Bungs couldn't ride. But their style of playing poly was irregular and rash. They had mighty little science, but a mighty lot of dash. And they played on mountain ponies that were muscular and strong, though their coats were quite unpolished and their manes and tails were long. And they used to train those ponies wheeling cattle in the scrub. They were demons, were the riders of the G-Bunk Polo Club. It was somewhere down the country in the city smoke and steam that a polo club existed called the Cuff and Collar Team. As a social institution, it was a marvellous success for the members were, were distinguished by exclusiveness and dress. They had natty little ponies that were nice and smooth and sleek, for their cultivated owners only rode them once a week. So they started up the country in pursuit of sport and fame, for they meant to show the G-Bungs how they ought to play this game, and they took their valets with them just to give their boots a rub. Yeah, they started operations on the G-Bung Polo Club. Now, my readers can imagine how the contest ebbed and flowed. When the G-Bung boys got going, it was time to clear the road. And the game was so terrific that our half the time was gone, a spectator's leg was broken just from merely looking on. <laughs> <laughs> For they waddied one another until the plane was straight. I love the word waddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a waddy was a club, for the, but I've never seen it used as a verb anywhere. They waddied one another till the plane was strewn with dead while the score was kept so even, even that they neither got ahead. And the cuff and collar captain, when he tumbled off to die, was the last surviving player, so the game was called a tie. <laughs> then the captain of the G-Brungs raised him slowly from the ground, though his wounds were mostly mortal, yet he fiercely gazed around. There was no one to oppose him. All the rest were in a trance. So he scrambled on his pony for his last expiring chance. For he meant to make an effort to get victory to his side. So he struck a goal and missed it. And then he tumbled off to die. <laughs> <laughs> now Banjo has a, a, a final verse to this poem where it says how if you ride past that paddock these days you hear the ghost and you ride for the paddock. It's unnecessary mm. because to me... He struck a goal and missed it, and he tumbled off to die. Cracks me up. It's the perfect ending. My point is, that was obviously my father's favourite book, and he loved all those poems. He never read them to us. I think if he had read me poems like that, or The Bush Christening, uh, where a, a kid is christened with a flask of McGuinness's whiskey, I would have had a totally different impression of him. I would have seen him in a different light. And I think that's possibly an important reason why we should read to our children because our choices of subject matter will tell them something about us. So I throw that out there for you now. When I was looking into this um, session and kind of doing a, just a quick bit of research about why I read to children and... and you know, hundreds of studies come up uh, and they, they spell out benefits that are like enriched language exposure, listening skills, spelling, reading comprehension, vocabulary. Um, there's MRI studies that show that kids' brains literally change when they're being read to, um, which was pretty interesting. But I think that is the no-brainer part of this topic, isn't it? We, we could probably all 
get that if we thought about it for two minutes and we wouldn't need a study to tell us that. Now, Morris, you've been to thousands of schools, literally, um, as an author and as a laureate. You wrote a really fascinating piece about what else happens to kids, so way beyond just that kind of really mechanical language acquisition stuff. So could you tell us a bit about that? Well, this, this came, came out of um, my decision to concentrate on story and the reasons why stories have stayed at the centre of our human discourse for as long as we've had one and all the things that they give us and all the things we need from them and in particular what they, what they offer and give to young people. And this, I guess, brings our, our discussion looking at the fact that, that we can't really separate um, or, or when we're talking about the value of reading to young people, what is being read and why and, and the effect that that content is having on them is always has to be a part of the, the discussion. Um, and so I guess a central message um, that I've been bringing to the many conversations with adults that, that is, is really um, the core of my laureate work because um, I decided that, that the general laureate responsibility, as Alison knows well, is to roam where we will on the entire landscape of young people's reading, writing, creative thinking and communication and to do whatever we, we feel we're able to support and, and enable and encourage and infuse in those areas. And it struck me at the very beginning of my two years that this would best involve a lot of conversations with adults because most young people depend on permission, time, space, resourcing um, and, and, and other inputs from adults, from gatekeepers and the people who pretty much control what kids do, when and where, um, for these opportunities to, to be at their greatest. And I've been really struck from the first of these conversations to find how many adults, and I'm talking about parents, not so much teachers and librarians because, of course, they, they already know this stuff. Um, for, so from parents, from grassroots, right up to individuals who, in the corridors of power, are the purse string holders and the policy makers who, whose sometimes um, quite offhand decisions can, can have a huge impact on the reading culture of our young people. How often adults have either forgotten or really were never perhaps tragically aware from their own childhoods just what stories can contribute. A rich, varied diet of, of story reading can contribute to all the kind of key developmental um, um, stages. say, 7 to 11 or 12, although I'm delighted that many of my books are, are read by older um, people as well. And, and um, children's stories written for that age are very traditional. They follow some of the, the very ancient structures of stories. They are mercifully free from many of the intellectual, many of the overlays of, of intellectual game playing that adult fiction has been um, subjected to over the last 50 or or a hundred years, delightfully in some cases, but it's very useful that children's stories remind us of the core functions and, and purposes of a story. And a typical children's story, um, 
and I try and compress this in as few words as possible, as I will now, a typical children's story has a young protagonist facing a massive problem, way bigger than anything they've ever faced or thought they would. And it's so big and urgent, there's no chance of turning their back, hiding under the covers, blaming someone else. It's got to be faced up with and dealt with, or that, that individual is going to be in some way destroyed. And so first, information must be found out about the problem. Research skills, information gathering and selection skills need to be developed by the young main character. Once they have a sense of the nature of the problem and what's causing it, they need to think honestly and bravely about themselves, their place in the world, whether they are in any way contributing to the problem. They also need to make another brave decision. Do I think I can survive or solve this problem on my own. If not, I'm going to need some new friendships to form allegiances. And often, in my books and in many others, the individuals available for these new um, allegiances are not the sort of people that the character would normally have made friends with in the past. So new interpersonal skills, extra degrees of empathy, the capacity to put yourself in the shoes of people that are so different from you, you might feel a bit scared or alienated from them, including putting yourself, if possible, in the shoes of your enemy. And once you've marshaled all that information and all that assistance, you start developing problem-solving strategies, possibly the first one you've ever developed, so you have to come to understand even what that is. And after lots of hard work, um, you're ready to put your first problem-solving strategy into action. You unleash it, and you discover that because it's only page 39 and you're a character in a long-form fiction and your your friend and guide and accomplice um, and protector, your author, also is contracted to write at least 240 pages. <laughs> That problem-solving strategy will not ever, ever be successful at that point. And you are then, of course, plunged into a pit of despair and shame as a result of that failure. But you have your accomplices and your author to help you out to realise that, A, you can survive failure, one of the most wonderfully useful experiences we can have, and also that you can learn from the specifics of that failure. And so you go on and your next problem-solving strategy honed in the awareness of what went wrong last time, happens around page 90, still too early, fail again, <laughs> move on. And by the time you get to the end of your journey, and depending on the size and nature of your problem, it may be solvable, it may not. But what is absolutely certain, and it's my one absolutely immutable rule of writing for young people, is that you as the main character, even if you have years, a lifetime, and maybe your, your descendants will still be struggling with that same problem through their lifetimes. One thing that I will guarantee you as your author is that you will always be better off in terms of how you feel about yourself and your place in the world and your future possibilities at the end of the story compared to how you were at the beginning. So teachers and, and parents here will instantly recognise that all those key points and all the benefits and developmental attributes that result from them are at the absolute heart of what we hope for our young people from their education, particularly their primary school education. So simply, a childhood full of hundreds of those story journeys, different in each book, but always with that same core of necessary developmental points, maybe thousands of them, it's going to rub off. There are studies that show how it's internalised. And the young adult who's had hundreds or thousands of those story journeys will be equipped in so many advantageous and life-enriching and survival-enhancing ways compared to an unfortunate 21-year-old um, who didn't have that in those preceding years.
I hope the writers out there were taking notes because that was the formula for writing a fabulous Morris Gleitzman book. Alison, you're you're working in mostly in picture books. Mm-hmm. Um, those, you know, that that powerful experience that begins our reading and writing life. Although interestingly, not necessarily in a conscious way. It sort of lays down an unconscious framework. Could you talk about why picture books are so powerful and and what their impact is? Um, well. I don't really know, and I was thinking when um, <clears throat> Morris was speaking so well then, God, I don't know any of this stuff, um, because I do tend to work in quite an emotional way, like there's something that I have an idea about that, that I do and it somehow turns into a book, but I think when, um, when you look at a picture book with little kids, you really can go into a whole world, and I think that's really lovely where um, just this Tricky's Bad Day, when I've been reading it to the grandchildren, um, kind of go really quiet. It's like they think, she shouldn't know this stuff, you know? This is this is our, our naughtiness that she's talking about here and she shouldn't know. So I, I, for me, I think for picture books, it is really just that wonderful world that you can... And it's also that beautiful time where you're sitting with kids, whether you're snuggled up in bed or in a car or on the beach or whatever, but you can just hang around and have fun and read without a lot of time restraints or any sort of pressure. So you were the inaugural... Australian Children's <clears throat> Laureate, or mm-hmm. one of the pair. Can you talk a bit about that program and what it aimed to do and how you took that on? Maura sort of alluded to that when in your answer. What did, how did you take that on and what did you want to do in that time? Um, yeah, well, everyone does it in different ways. The year um, that um, Buri and I were the inaugural laureates, that we went to a conference in Bologna um, where the laureates came from all over the world. And I remember the Swedish guy saying that he wasn't doing any work with children at all. He was just working with the media and saying how important it was that, you know, if kids didn't read, things would be dire. So he was kind of taking it right up to there. And have, the way we operated was very much at grassroots level, talking to in schools and libraries. And I was always moaning that we were always preaching to the converted, you know. It was very hard to reach those kids who came from houses <coughs> that didn't have any books. Um, and, but I do remember going to um, Elizabeth South Primary School in Adelaide and being shocked at how many really poor, skinny, dirty kids there were in that school. That I didn't realise that sort of poverty occurred in cities in Australia. So we did talk to those kids then. And, and always when... Um, I don't like so much just talking to kids. I'll often do some sort of workshop. And with those kids who are really underprivileged, when you arrive with a whole lot of beautiful art materials and a fresh approach, so you don't know that Nathan has been really giving his teacher the absolute willies for the last month. So instead, he's this little kid who's really interested in doing something. So often those naughty kids actually do something fabulous. And um, so, yeah, we work very much. We travelled all over Australia, the two of us. I don't know how many miles we clocked up just doing workshops and talking to people about how important it was not only to read but to have your own stories. So, yeah, it was a, a lovely, lovely experience. John, you, um, your incredible series, The Ranger's Apprentice, which has sold 15 gazillion copies in the known universe, <coughs> um, started to help your son to read. Oh, yeah. Could you yeah. tell us that story? Um, well, there are two things about Mike... Um, well, <laughs> two salient points. Um, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in reading. He didn't dislike it. He didn't like it. He was just neutral towards it. And he was small. And he wasn't neutral towards that. He didn't like being small. Um, I thought if I wrote a series of adventure stories where the central character was based on him, 
uh, it might get him interested in reading. And also, I might be able to convince him that my publisher, my editor, Zoe Walton, came up with a terrific strap phrase for the series, which was, um, heroes come in all shapes and sizes, that... As I always say to kids now, you know, Hollywood's served us badly by making us feel that a hero has to be gigantic and muscle-bound and, you know, hello, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger, now I crush your skull. <laughs> um, I wanted to show Mike that a hero could be small and cheeky and feisty and fast-thinking, which all of which Michael was. So uh, I started writing a series about a character. Well, I, and also you had to have all of Michael's likes and dislikes. One of, one of his favourite uh, hobbies was archery, so my hero was going to be an archer, which meant he had to be in medieval times or a Red Indian. Um, and so I started writing... Uh, I then lied to him and said, I'm thinking of writing some stories for kids. Um, would you mind reading them and see if you think kids would like them? And he said, oh, yeah, that's all right. And uh, I used to give him to him, I'd write one a week, I'd give it to him on Friday afternoon and uh, drag him down out of a tree where he'd been, you know, read your story. Uh, the fourth week he actually turned, uh, walked into my home office and said, where's my story? <laughs> uh, <laughs> throw him in the bottom of the boat and knock him on the head, you know. Um, that, was that was, I thought, it's starting to work. Uh, and then... There's a scene in uh, the first book of Range of the Apprentice, which th th I wrote 20 stories for him. Um, there's a scene in one of the stories where Will, the, the protagonist, climbs up the outside of the tower. There's been a note written about him and he wants to find out what it is. And he goes into the, the Baron's study and, and it's all dark and he reaches out for this... ...came back into my office and said... I got scared reading this bit. I didn't know you could get scared reading. Oh. <laughs> uh, I rewrote that first book about four times, I think, and there's one page I have not changed a comma. <laughs> and it's that scene. Um, so, yeah, there were 20 short stories and then I got involved in a TV show and I, I stopped doing them. And I'd like to say that Michael became an avid reader immediately. He didn't, but he, he sort of learned, OK, yeah, small guy can be a hero. Uh, still annoying. I still get beaten up. Um, Learn to run fast, Mike. Um, but they went into a drawer. There were 20 short stories, and my daughter, Kitty, um, who you may have heard of, uh, some years later read some books by... A <laughs> little known and unsuccessful author called J.K. Rowling. And um, she said, Look, you know, you should take those stories you wrote for Mike and turn them into a book because this woman's got millions of kids reading and they're not going to stop when they get through her books. Uh, so she was instrumental in my cobbling them all together and, and it took a long process because I just stuck them all together and sent them to my agent. She said, no, Big problem. Uh, yeah, love the characters, love the dialogue. Uh, there's no story. And I said, Yeah, there's 20 of them. She said, That's the problem. <laughs> um, so a lot of rewriting, but that was the genesis of, of the series. Um, Michael still refers to himself as the original Will, which I find hilarious. He sometimes signs books with me, the original <laughs> Will. <laughs> but yeah, that's where that came from. Yeah. Yeah. So 
this raises that fascinating question. I mean, especially if you're not, you know, if you don't have the wherewithal to be, you know, an internationally best-selling author yourself to get your children to read is oh, how? Them. Yeah. How do you get kids? Yet. Let's roll along or just interrupt each other. I think, well, all of us here on, on the stage have, have, have heard about this countless times. We, when we go to schools, we talk to teachers, parents and kids themselves. And for, for every young person that I've ever spoken to or even heard of who is able to, to functionally read or listen to a story, there is an experience sooner or later when one of the books that is absolutely right for them, that is that is not just fun or at a book festival, that we only have to have one experience of the book that suddenly takes us several levels into what reading can offer. So that transcendent engagement with a book where suddenly there's nothing more important in our life than continuing to turn those pages. And you only really have to have that experience once and then you know that it's possible. Mm -hmm. And even if you fear that that's the only book in creation that will ever do that for you, you want more of those experiences. So, so you go hunting and you become a self-motivated and, and self-guided reader, which is not to say that your, your journey won't benefit massively from, if you're one of the lucky kids these days, to have regular contact with a real teacher librarian or a real librarian. But um, that's where it starts. And I think those very lucky parents and other adult family members who have the honour and the priceless experience of reading that first book to a young person, mm. to be reading it to them, and it's it's there's always a big element of luck as to which is the book that does it for them for the first time. If you happen to be reading it, and you'll know because even as you're doing your very best reading and your very best voices, they'll be snatching the book, saying, "No, no, come on, come on, faster, faster! I want to see what happens in the next chapter." Um, I think that's one of the precious things that can happen between adults and, and kids that, that they love. We've lost a lot of the rites of passage opportunities for both um, young people and, and the adults who care about them. And this is any, any reading between um, a parent or carer and a child is part of a, of a rites of passage. But when, it, when that spark comes out of that book, it, it, it becomes a very special thing indeed. And what I'd just quickly like to add is that um, most, most parents, busy, distracted, lots of other things, once kids can read for themselves, they're inclined not to continue reading. It's tricky because young people are fearful that if somebody's reading out loud to them when they're perfectly capable of reading themselves, that some, somehow the world's going to think that they're still you know, little kids when, they're, when they are desperate to feel that, that they're not. So, there, so some strategies are needed to keep that going. And it's a wonderful thing to share in families that precious gift of time. But there's another precious gift of time because even if our young people are just reading by themselves and for themselves, if they're reading what we'd hope they would be reading, stuff that is going to just 
expand their sense of themselves and the world they're in that's going to shock, dismay, exhilarate and fill them with things that they will want to talk about. They will always want to have conversations. And if we're able to make the time to have those conversations, that is completing everything that books are about. I'm obviously, like my colleagues, I'm heavily invested financially, ego-wise, and in all sorts of other ways <laughs> in the actual books I write. But I've, I've reached a stage now where I'll say unhesitatingly that the conversations are as important as the books. And together, they complete that stage of the job. And then there are more books and more conversations. So that's really as important as, as reading, is listening and, and having a real conversation rather than you know so many of our interactions as parents, even between me and my adult kids, are, um, there, are there are other agendas and, and perhaps they're not real conversations. But it can only, you know, 15, 20 minutes will do it. And, um, and well, I commend that to you heartily. Alison, you do a lot of work with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, going out to remote communities. Um, and, you know, we heard at the beginning of the session um, some of the statistics around readership and kids who can read in those communities. Mm -hmm. So you've got a really interesting perspective on what it's like to work with kids who really don't have the same sort of access to reading and reading opportunities. So what have you found with those kids? How do you engage them in reading and books? Um, I guess what I've found is that... Um, they love their own stories. Yeah. That these often when kids are living in remote communities, their worlds are so different from what's going on in picture books. And also for lots of them, if they're being read to in English, English might be their third language. Like they might speak two indigenous languages already, so English isn't their best language. So one of the really exciting things I do with the ILF is to go out to communities and work to make um, picture books in language. Um, I've just recently been at a little community, or a big community south of Broome called Bijidunga, and um, we worked at the playgroup there with the mums and the grandmothers and the kids making some board books that they could use with their children, and there's five languages there, plus Creole, plus English. And um, so we really just sat down with the Aboriginal mothers and the teachers um, and the grandmothers, and they had a few ideas for books already, and we helped... Jane Godwin, who's a fabulous author and editor, was with me as well. And we sat down and figured out how these stories could work as books and then they did all the illustrations. So it's it's a really magical thing. But in the old days, before I was with the ILF, I used to go to communities and I sometimes took an A3 printer in a box with me because um, you had to have everything with you, otherwise you'd be missing something to make a book. And we used to... Um, I'd talk to the kids about what they did. So often the stories were about hunting and things that they did because... They were the easiest things to talk about straight up. But we'd, we would actually illustrate and write the books and I'd make the books on the spot. So when I left the community, they might have a, a set of um, 20 little A5 landscape books with laminated covers. And that was so exciting to just see everyone just pouring over them and loving to see their own pictures and their own stories. So I think that's a really huge thing, to see your own lives reflected in books. Yeah. It's really fantastic work and great work that the foundation is doing. It's fabulous, yeah, yeah. and it's so much fun too. Like I like it just as much as I do making my own books. It's really thrilling, yeah. John, what have you found in your interactions with kids that, that really helps? I mean, I wondered if, you know, you've written two related 
series with many books in each. Is that kind of is that a strategy to you know you hook kids in at the beginning of a series and then you hope you carry them as readers right through the series, which has no commercial spin-off whatsoever. It's just a, a good thing to do. It's a tactic. Uh, um, Marcus Zusak told me uh, we have the same uh, agent, and he said. Uh, yeah, really easy for you. You've got a series. You don't have to reinvent the characters every time you start a new book. <laughs> Damn right. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I'm actually very proud of the fact that I, I never set out to educate or, or preach. or I just uh, I refer to myself as a storyteller or an entertainer. Uh, on my first real... Signing, which is years ago now, up in it was in Bundaberg, and I'll preface this with just so you know, my head is not totally swollen. Uh, my first signing was in my home suburb of Manly, and um, one person came to the desk. <laughs> I've had that experience too. Uh, <laughs> I thought, oh, thank God, yeah, he's sitting at the, the ubiquitous card table, you know, <laughs> and he picked up my book, my lonely little green book. Tossed it on the table and walked away. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, the Roman generals who used to go on a triumph through the streets of Rome and there would always be a, a slave in the chariot with them saying, this will pass, this will pass, you know. Uh, but my first real signing was a picture of me and I had four books and I'm signing. There was a queue and I'm signing. And this woman came up uh, with her son's four books and put them on the table and said, I just want to thank you. And then she burst into tears. And uh, I am, you know, Irish by descent and I get emotional, so I burst into tears with her. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of going, no, no, happy times, happy times. <laughs> and she said, my son, you know, wasn't a reader and, and your books got him into reading and now his school marks have just improved. He's gone from the bottom 10% to the top 5% of it. And... <laughs> yeah. So I signed the books and, and she sobbed her way off. And um, a girl came up, a schoolgirl came up afterwards and I'd already signed her books and she said, I just want to tell you the same thing. It's, it's been a recurring theme and I'm very proud of it. Um, I started the stories for what we call a reluctant reader, my son. They still seem to be working in that area. Um, I know from librarians... And this to, to the question before of how do we get kids interested in reading, involve your school librarian. They're brilliant. Um, I remember feeling furious in California when I was on tour where a local politician said, you don't really need a trained librarian. Anybody can check a book in and out in schools. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We organised a lynch mob. Um, <laughs> but... Involve your school librarian. They are brilliant at seeing what a kid might like, what might involve them, what might get them going. I, I mean, I had one kid describe to me, I said, why do you like the books? And he said, because there's heaps fighting. <laughs> uh, fair enough, got your reading. Um, I, 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 as I say, I'm extremely proud of that. It's a theme that keeps recurring. I get emails. I meet people when I'm touring. An amazing thing has happened for me and this has happened particularly in the Netherlands. I was there about two months ago. I had in one session three people tell me that my books, reading my books, and yeah, yay me, but um, had helped them fight their way through dyslexia. 
it doesn't work for all levels. There are different levels of dyslexia. But I thought, God. And the first I heard that was in Holland about five years ago. And I've had it since. Uh, enough times for it to be significant. And one of them could articulate it and said, it's because I get involved with the characters in the story. And if I push through the barrier, it's like there's a physical barrier that was stopping them reading, then I can read. And I was asked this time in, in Holland by a mother, how would, how would I suggest that she might help her uh, dyslexic son start reading? And um, my suggestion to her, I said, it's not necessarily going to work, but um, try it with spoken word books. Try the recorded books. Get him interested in the characters and the story. He might just push through himself. So um, it needs the involvement of parents, uh, mm. uh, of adults, of older siblings, but school librarians, they are just brilliant. Mm. I love them. Yeah, yeah they're fantastic. I, really do. I mean, that, this raises that, the knotty issue of screens and screen time, doesn't it? And I'm sure, you know, I don't have kids myself, but when I see my um, relatives and nieces and nephews, that seems to be the big challenge is how do you... I think most of the time they're on the screens, well, I... I can't always tell what they're doing, especially as they're older. Are they reading something or are they watching something or are they on social media? I'm not... I can't tell. And certainly with the younger ones, they're, they're watching, you know, and it's so... And I know the feeling. It's so tempting to go, I can have half an hour of adult conversation if I put on Peppa Pig or something or, you know, anything that they're going to be engaged with. And you see them lock in, you know, we all know that way kids lock into that and they're, they're gone. So... How how do we kind of position reading when there's this beautiful, bright, shiny, colourful alternative? Can, can I um, have my turn to read a very short piece? Yes, because um, there are times when um, something needs to be a section of a story or, or something that needs to be read out to young people for slightly more immediate practical reasons than to give them a transcendent and, and, and life-changing um, experience. Um, crowd control, for example, is something that harassed and often um, relief teachers, sometimes not. They need a way just to, um, just to exert some crowd control over a large and unruly group of often year six or year seven students. And, and in giving you this example, I, I think it also reminds us that, that so, uh, what happens when when words meet our imaginations can usually be more powerful than anything that can happen on a screen. I don't have this book with me, so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna um, hopefully remember most of it. It's just the first um, few lines from my book, uh, Bumface. <laughs> Angus Solomon sighed, Ms. Lowry. Is that a penis you've drawn in your exercise book? <laughs> Angus jumped, startled. Miss Lowry was standing over his desk, staring down at the page. Angus felt his heart speed up and his hands go clammy. For a second, he thought about lying. He decided not to. No, miss, he said. It's a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Lowry... Miss Lowry looked down at the page, her eyes going even narrower. I thought as much, she said. 
Now stop wasting time and draw a penis like I asked you to. <laughs> and I know this is this is a little bit um, a little bit big-headed, but I imagine that poor teacher stepping into that classroom for the very first time, relieving and she or he is is fair game for a tough and unruly class who is just needing a bit of sport to to bring themselves alive again and she could show them the first three minutes of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or she could read them the first three minutes of a book such as the one I've just read you and 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 I think we know which one would serve best as a crowd control device. I, I think that needs a round of applause for the feat of memory. <laughs> I have to say, Marissa, when I was in, um, we used to call it from two year eight, I was actually, that happened to me, I was sitting at the back in the maths class and I was good at maths so I'd finished and I was drawing an enormous fat naked lady in the back of my maths textbook and I heard this voice go, What's that rubbish? And it was the maths teacher, so it really happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> Alison and John, do you want to add anything to this idea of, you know, how do you work with screens, against screens, how do you tempt children away from them? Um, in my case, I <laughs> refuse to have any video games made from my books, although it's been requested several times. Because I got a, an email from a kid in America who wrote saying, I used to just sit in front of my computer playing video games all the time and I read your books and uh, I found we had a bow in the attic. So now I go out in the woods and I hunt. Oh, no, I don't hunt. I stalk. <laughs> and you know, I thought, God, I've got a kid shooting people. <laughs> At least he's doing it with a bow and arrow and he won't wake up the neighbours, you know. Um, but the thought that he'd got off his backside and got out in the front, I thought, oh... God, I'm pleased with that. Um, so I, I, I think the thing is kids are just amazing. It's, um, I mean, if I were to do an exercise with you lot now that I often do with kids where I start a story about how I was, I was in Washington and a guy ran past dragging a kid by the hand and, and the kid had tripped and was being dragged along going, stop, 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 and, and the guy went round the corner and nobody took any notice except me and, I, and so I'll ask kids what was happening and it starts off they say oh he was late for the bus for the bus you go yeah it could have been that and then I kind of guide it but the best one I got was it was uh, not a kid it was a robot it was actually a replica of Obama's younger daughter uh, it was loaded with explosives and the guy was going to uh, drive it into the White House and, and blow up Obama <laughs> and that took about 10 minutes to get to that from a guy who was late for the bus and all the kids contributed and occasionally I would turn to an adult and say, so what happened next? And I'd go, don't ask me. <laughs> um, kids' minds are prepared to be imaginative. They're prepared to see. Very early on, one school had, uh, I've got these monsters called Wargles because I realised I can't have a 15-year-old kid going around shooting people with a bow and arrow. Mothers will not like this. So I had to create non-human monsters enemies and I realised why so many fantasy writers do uh, and so um, Will used to shoot at Wargles and we got uh, one class to draw a Wargle as they saw them and I had a very very vague description of them uh, 
And we got back 12 kids did drawings. They were 12 completely different monsters. They saw them so differently. And that's like this wonderful strength. And one of the reasons that I'm sort of kind of worried about when, when God help us, the, the books eventually become movies, that I'm then depicting Will for them. And I like the fact mm. now... Mm. One, one person looked at the first cover of the first book, which, oh, no, that's not it, which had a photograph of a guy on there and said, that's not Will, that's not how I see him. Mm. Uh, and it's great that every kid sees it differently, has a different picture in their mind. If you can invoke that, and I've just been lucky that I have. I don't know what the, the formula is. I don't know if there is a formula. But if you yeah, can... Didn't you hear it before? It was... <laughs> I hope oh. someone got it down. Yeah, but if I was to admit that I heard it, he'd sue me for my next book. You know? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, all, all, my, my formula is basically just keep it moving. You know, um, Don't get bogged down in long descriptive passages. Um, have a lot of action. Have a lot of movement. Um, Keep them entertained. I think it was John 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 Cle John Cleary John Creasy um, uh, novelist here had yeah, a great. I can't remember either. John, I think it was John Cleary had a great saying, which was "Make them turn the first page," mm, mm. Uh, and that's true of any reader. But if you can mm. get kids, particularly, I, I, I sometimes will do it by starting with a line of dialogue. Um, it's kind of hard to resist a line of dialogue if you're reading. But, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm just really, really lucky. Mm. And the reason there aren't really any, any formulas for, for is, is that on the page, as opposed to the screen, there are always spaces. Sentences symbolise this with the little spaces between the words, but it's what we don't put on the page. You look at any any scene of a movie, and the visual detail of that moment in that story is far, far more than you would ever get mm. from the page because it would take 18 pages of just description and you'd, you'd, you'd have closed the book by then. So in, de in a descriptive sense, but much more importantly in a, in a narrative sense, in a what-might-happen-next sense, there, there are so many spaces for the imagination of the reader to enter and to become a part of the story. Mm. And, and, and that very, very important um, thing that John just mentioned about us creating, all of us read the same story and we create it slightly differently, each of us, mm. that's because that, um, that a text story, and, and it actually doesn't matter if we're reading it off paper or off a, off a screen, I think, but that, that it's a text story that it's full of, of invitations for us to go in and bring something of ourselves, our life experience, our preferences, our biases sometimes, and that story is co-created. We're the senior partner, we writers, but it's still co-created, and, and that's part of why so many of the useful experiences that young people are reading in their stories are internalised because they are actually there, literally helping those images in, to occur in their minds, those emotions and those ideas and thoughts and, and predictions about what might be possible. Firstly, in the future of the character in the story, but when you get used to taking current evidence and starting to speculate and predict what might be possible in the future, you are developing the habit of thinking creatively about the future possibilities of your own.
all screen bad, you know, <laughs> written word good, screen bad. Um, let's never forget that an awful lot of stuff you see on screen you've got to be able to read. You know, a lot of it is text, a lot of, you know, so if they can't read in the first place, they're missing out on that. So screens aren't necessarily all that bad. And screens uh, have wonderful things like Bluey that are just gold, you know, they yes. really, yeah. there's some great stuff out there. And The Simpsons. Mm. That's right. <laughs> Okay, you've been a wonderful audience. You've been so attentive and engaged, and our panel has been awesome. Give them a great big cheer. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.